Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lisenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. Kate, what have you been up to lately? What sort of magic do you have brewing in Brooklyn right now? Mm, That's a really good question. You know, lately I've been getting back into a little bit of movement magic. So I don't know if anyone else feels like this, but after two years at a desk uh, in a pandemic, I feel like a little bit stagnant. So I used to always go to classes and I was so active um, here in the city. And so I've just been really getting excited about clearing out that stagnancy and working kind of with the heat of summer as it rolls into the city. And, you know, I may, I know that like running on a track doesn't really sound the most magical, but there's something really meditative about being in a group and moving around in a circle like that. Like I can feel the energy sort of shifting within my body and I don't know, kind of moving out of my head and and back into my body, which is so important for an Aquarius. And I also feel like running soothes my Aries moon really nicely. Oh, I bet. I completely agree. Movement is magic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Reconnecting with our breath is magic, even if only for a few minutes at a time. Um, I'm not much of a runner, but I actually just got a jump rope and have been challenging myself. Yeah, to get up every so often when I'm riding to like jump for 30 seconds or a minute Mm -hmm. because, yeah, the stagnancy feeling is, is very real. Wait, how's the hula hoop going? I still have the hula hoop. Um, I need to get a better one. I feel like I kind of got a weighted hula hoop, which wasn't my intention. So, um, yeah, if anyone has any recommendations for good hula hoops, let me know. I've got you. We'll talk after. (laughs) I also just finally finished that six-week course on Catholic folk magic and saint craft that was so amazing, and I really hope that Dakota, the teacher, writes a book ASAP. Um, And and now I'm just kind of knee-deep in astrology class with Rebecca Gordon again, which I'm obsessed with. Um, It's like learning a new language and system, and it all makes so much sense. Uh, I also have to tell you about later this recording of a class, um, Geomancy, Earth Divination and Sorcery, and it's with Dr. Alexander Cummins. And I've never heard of Geomancy before, but I'm really excited to explore a new form of divination. I was sending you the kind of graphics last night and we were talking about it, but um, I don't know what what's on your witchy horizons and in, in your cauldron currently, Kristen. Well, just going back to what you said, we absolutely need to have a discussion about geomancy because, yeah, that video you sent me the other day, like, I'm I'm so intrigued. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, more on that later. 
for me right now on the magical front, I've been swapping my tarot cards for books lately. Um, you know, not really surprisingly, but <laughs> just sort of putting cardomancy on the back burner so I can explore bibliomancy um, on a deeper level. Mm. And you know, I'm sure we've mentioned bibliomancy here before on this podcast, but if there's any listeners uh, who that term might be new for, um, when I say bibliomancy, I'm talking about divination with books. Yeah, I really, really loved when you talked about bibliomancy in the Bardo, which is the writing school that I run for folks who don't know the spring. And it was just, Kristen, so magical. So I have to ask us to get started here. Like, what is it about bibliomancy that you love um, over, say, like a pendulum or scrying? Uh, Well, thank you first for those kind words. I don't know. I think I just love books in general and writing. Mm-hmm. So it just feels like organic and so natural. Um, but bibliomancy is also something that feels readily available in almost any moment. Like I definitely misplace my tarot cards from time to time, but there are always books laying around and I am a witch who believes in using what's available. Yes. And yeah, it's like kitchen witchery. Like you use Mm -hmm. what you have and that is its own type of magic. Wise woman tradition is do the best that you can with what you've got. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know I've mentioned uh, before here how mythologist Dr. Martin Shaw suggests that books can be ancestors and that by reading and telling stories, we're tending to the dead. And I love that. And I feel like it's so true because through books, we can work with people and archetypes and ideas that maybe aren't being talked about in mainstream society or sometimes at all. Mm. And Truthfully, I think bibliomancy influences my writing, like for the better. As you know, Kate, um, I long, we long to write all the books. So I really think about every line, every word that I use. You know, how might it be interpreted by those who just pick the book up, flip to a page, and read at random? Mm. Yeah, that's why I love poetry so much, is it's just the right selection of words strung together. Um, And I I think that this mysterious form of communication through artifact, it's both like ancient and present at the same time. Ah, I love it. Um, So in anticipation of all of the summer reading that we have planned, let's talk a bit about bibliomancy and then let's dive into some summer goddess tales. Yeah, let's do it. different ways to divine with spirit and flex our inner sight. I am a huge fan of pendulum work if I'm looking for yes or no answers, tarot if I want to be slapped in the face with the truth, and books if I'm looking for answers in the form of literal words. In the book Crafting Magic with Pen and Ink by Susan Pesnecker, it says that bibliomancy has been evolving for years. In the medieval times, bibliomancy involved weighing a person's guilt. It reads, quote, 
A person suspected of a crime was placed on a giant scale and weighed against the local church's enormous Bible. If he outweighed the good book, he was guilty as charged. If he weighed less, he was free to go. End quote. This totally reminds me of the weighing of the heart right in ancient Egypt, where the heart of the deceased is weighed on the scale against the feather of the goddess Mat, who personifies order and truth and what is right. Yes, that's absolutely what I thought of too when I read this. And I have mm-hmm. to wonder if there's maybe a little bit of a connection here. Totally. But this description is obviously much different than the bibliomancy of today. There's an article on the Tamed Wild blog called Intro to Divination that describes all sorts of divinatory methods, including bibliomancy. In short, it reads, Bibliomancy can be used with any book, anywhere, although many tend to use more sacred and holy texts. How it works is you ask a question aloud, then flip to the page that's calling to you for the answer. For a more specific result, use your finger. Wherever your finger lands on the page is where your answer is to be found. The ancient Romans called this practice sorts, where they would draw a passage or sentence from a book or piece of writing, and from that, decipher a message. During that time, the writings of Homer and the poet Virgil were often used. In parts of 16th century Iran and Turkey, a book that was popular to use for bibliomancy was called Falnama, or Book of Omens, which I am still trying to get my hands on today. I mean, with a title like that. I know, right? Like, every every witch needs this. Mm-hmm. Beyond the Christian Bible, people might rely on the Torah, the Quran, the Tripitaka, and the Vedas for their bibliomancy practice. Books of stories and myth are also popular, as well as fictional novels and even dictionaries, encyclopedias, and our very own Book of Shadows. Literally any book. Yeah, basically. But I think if we feel any sort of connection with a book, that's a great breadcrumb for us to follow. Mm. We can also choose a book based on color or another characteristic. For example, if our question is related to love, maybe we choose a book from our shelf that has a red cover. If our question is for the Greek goddess Athena or related to wisdom or seeing in the dark, maybe choose a book with an owl on the cover. For those who don't know, the owl is sacred to Athena. But many people lean towards holy texts because they're looking for answers from God or spirit or trying to get a glimpse into what could be. It's so amazing to speak openly about the magic of books since in the old world, bibliomancy was usually done behind closed doors. This is because like tarot, mediumship, pretty much any form of divination or psychic work done by the average person. You know, it was considered witchcraft or ungodly. At the very least, it was suspicious. So bibliomancy was no exception. A while back, I wrote about a ritual I came across where people would take a skeleton key and tie it to a long ribbon. They would slip the key between the pages of their Bible or holy book and then bind the book not too tightly, with the ribbon. Then they would hang on to the loose end of the ribbon and gently swing the book. When the key slipped out from the pages, whatever page lay open was believed to hold their answer. 
At first glance, books might not seem mystical or magical, but we can lean on bibliomancy just like we lean on our tarot cards. I think that's a really beautiful idea. Yeah, I do too. And when I was researching this type of divination, I discovered that some mediums use a method called the book test, where the soul of a loved one would direct the practitioner towards a book, sometimes a specific page, to be shared with their living relatives. Other people incorporate food into their bibliomancy practice, which transforms it into alluromancy, a fancy way to say written divination with baked goods. Mm. So no <laughs> books here, just words and dough and sugar. Um, an example of this is, you know, like choosing a fortune cookie or getting a specific piece of cake at a birthday that spells out something meaningful to you, whether intentional or not. Using numerology with bibliomancy is another option. An example of this might be if you keep seeing, you know, for example, 222 everywhere. So you would grab whatever book you're currently reading, turn to page 222, or, uh, you know, read the second line of the second paragraph of page two, something like that. Mm-hmm. We can also use our bibliomancy practice as an offering or a way to deepen our relationship with certain deities, specifically those who have influence in the spheres of writing or communication. We might consider Athena, who I mentioned earlier, Celtic goddess Brigid, or Egyptian goddess Sashat, who is the cosmic librarian and keeper of the Akashic Records. There's also Thoth, um, also pronounced Thoth, or Mesopotamian goddess Nisaba. Mercury or Hermes come to mind as well. Uh, And I know, Kate, they have a piece up on magic and alchemy about Mercury that you wrote. So listeners, uh, more on him over there if you're curious. Mm, I had a lot of fun writing that one. Yeah, I love him. Mm -hmm. I love incorporating bibliomancy into a channeled writing practice. Usually I'll spend a good amount of time writing stream of consciousness style. And when I'm finished, there's always at least, you know, one question, if not several. So to wrap things up, I'll grab a book, uh, usually just whatever one I'm reading or working with at that time and intuitively flip through the book until I feel called to stop. Whatever the book shares with me, even if it feels pointless or unrelated to anything, I write it down in my journal so I can reflect on it later. But, you know, these are just a few methods. Bibliomancy allows for so much personalization, which I think is key when it comes to divination and finding a practice that works with us and not against us. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, similarly to you, Kristen, I really love to use bibliomancy in an art is magic practice. You Mm -hmm. know, because of all of my years studying poetry, I have a super obscene poetry collection. If anyone needs a book of poems, let me know. But um, I've often used bibliomancy to select like a first line in a poem that I'm working on if I'm not sure how to start. And then, you know, after I've written the piece, I'll often kind of remove that first line or on ramp and then I'll have a piece born from that spark, you know, or if I decided to leave it, of course, I would credit the author. Yeah, I love this idea because, like you said, it's it's that spark that we're after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've also used bibliomancy in a channeled writing practice, much like you mentioned, except I do it just a little bit differently, which is that sort of like personalization that you were talking about. 
Um, I often will use it to divine kind of an anchor phrase for the channeled writing. And this anchored phrase is the phrase that I return to when I'm doing the writing. So instead of writing, I don't know what to say, um, or something like this until words come out. Cause you know, I'm a firm believer in the magic of words as we both are. And I don't want to hex myself as I'm doing the practice by saying that I don't have anything to talk about. So Often this divine phrase, much kind of like your skeleton key ritual, will unlock something that I've been trying to express. Just love bibliomancy so much. <laughs> well, yeah, there's just there's just so much to love. And I've been thinking a lot about how to bring bibliomancy into a digital world. Ooh. Because even, yeah, even though I will choose a physical book over my e-reader any day. I do love certain things that my Kindle can do that physical books cannot. Um, for example, like organizing and compiling all of my highlights and favorite passages into one area. There is a website called clippings.io that you can connect with your Kindle or e-reader. And what it does is compile all of your Kindle highlights. So this is amazing for inspiration. So if you're sitting down to write or begin a project, but I don't know, you're feeling kind of directionless or don't want to start with a blank page, pull up your clippings and read through your list. You know, I don't have a Kindle and have never wanted one, but mm -hmm. <laughs> this moment <laughs> for the first time feels super tempting because that sounds amazing, like an amazing yeah. practice. And, um, you know, I think w random word generators can be really fun for this sort of digital bibliomancy too. Like I've often used that to like generate the first word in like a five line poem, like I'll ask for five random generated words and then kind of write from those. And mm. I think there's a lot of fun AI projects out there too, um, that are interesting forms of online divination. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea using a word generator. Um, but yeah, just thinking about like digital bibliomancy has just been like a beautiful game changer for me, especially as someone who works from home solo, because it feels like you're actually brainstorming and working alongside a creative partner. Looking forward to sharing a couple goddess tales in this episode, but before I dive in, Kristen, are there any goddesses in particular calling to you right now? Yes, Athena. I think I've mentioned before, but she is one of the goddesses that I love working with at this time of year. She's a solar goddess, of course, closely tied to Zeus and war, but also wisdom and weaving and writing. And I feel like she's someone I will continue to work with for a while because I still don't feel like I've uncovered all of her truths um, because there are so many stories about her. And I know we talked about Athena a little bit during our Medusa episode mm -hmm. um, earlier in the season, but you know, Athena's connection to the moon and the patriarchy and Gorgons and the goddess is so fascinating. Um, and so as I'm saying this, I'm thinking maybe she needs her own episode in season three. Um, mm. But if anyone else out there loves Athena, or even if you dislike her, because it was actually my annoyance of her um, 
that made me research her. And that's kind of what changed my mind. But her annual festival is coming up in June. Um, So this is like a really great time to work with her. Yeah, I definitely need to spend some more time with Athena. So that should be a season three thing because I I feel annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Yeah. So deep dive there and definitely send us your resources if you have them about her. Uh, You know, and as I was doing my research for this episode, many of the deities that I associated with sun worship were dudes. So Mm -hmm. there's Zeus and Apollo, Helios, Hyperion, Sol, Dazbog, Bel, Lu, who we had an episode about last season. So if you're interested in him, go check that out. Um, And as I kind of peered through my books of mythology, the goddess seemed to be more embraced and symbolized by the moon. Um, And of course, I understand why this might be, but definitely something that I found interesting that I wanted to shine a little light on. Um, Additionally, that doesn't mean that sun goddesses like don't exist and and don't shine brightly through their own corridors of history. But I feel like I kind of had to look for a different entry point into their stories and associations with the sun, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to me, Bridget is one of these goddesses. So for those that don't know the goddess Bridget yet, Bridget is the goddess of Imbolc, patron of poets, goddess of the healing waters and of the forge. Definitely head to our Imbolc episodes where we speak more about this goddess born from the flames because I think she's a really potent goddess for working with in the summer, even though her celebration is February 1st. Today, I'm going to focus on the goddess Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, and Anya, the fairy goddess of midsummer. So in Roman mythology, the goddess Aurora renews herself every morning and flies across the sky, announcing the arrival of the sun. Her parentage was flexible, depending on your reference point. However, for Ovid, she could equally be Palantis, signifying the daughter of Pallas or the daughter of Hyperion. So in stories, she has two siblings, a brother, Sol, the sun, and a sister, Luna, the moon. Aurora appears most often in romance or sexual poetry with one of her mortal lovers and a myth taken from the greek by the roman poets tells that she was one of the lovers of the prince of troy tythonus and so tythonus was immortal and would therefore age and die and wanting to be with him for all eternity Aurora went to Jupiter to grant immortality to her lover, and Jupiter granted her wish, but she failed to ask for eternal youth to accompany his immortality, and so he continued to age, eventually becoming forever old. Aurora then decided to turn him into a cicada, which is uh, Mm -hmm. an epic choice, in my opinion. Yes. (laughs) Um... And this story really reminds me of the Cumaean Sibyl, uh, you know, who rebuked Apollo and then aged forever until she was just a voice in the jar, inspiring the bell jar by Sylvia Plath. And I think we spoke about her in our Oak Tree episode, right? Yeah, I think we did. Mm-hmm. 
And just to backtrack for a minute, but I can't help but think of Aurora and Sleeping Beauty because I know Disney movies have a lot of ties to, you know, pagan belief systems and stories. And so I'm just wondering if there's overlap here as I imagine like this beautiful maiden of the dawn. That's really interesting. And like something about this like forever sort of sleep until this moment of mm-hmm. wake being like the hinge of her story. Um, I, I want to go back and like read the original fairy tale now. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to do that when we close out this podcast, but <laughs> that's a, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And I'm just obsessed with Aurora as kind of the intermediary between the day and the night, then like asleep and awake. And she is the sister in between the sun and the moon after all. And the space in between, you know, witches love that. <laughs> yes. Um, in works of art, she's represented as a young woman, usually winged, uh, either walking or rising from the sea, often in a chariot drawn by winged horses. Sometimes uh, she's depicted as the goddess who dispenses dew in the morning, so she might have a pitcher in each hand. But And it's clear that Aurora is beloved by poets mentioned by Virgil, Ovid, Hesiod, Emily Dickinson, and Shakespeare. In Dickinson's Let Me Not Mar That Perfect Dream, she writes, Let me not mar that perfect dream by an auroral stain, but so adjust my daily night that it will come again. And in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, but also soon as the all-cheering sun should in the furthest east begin to draw, the shady curtains from Aurora's bed away from the light steals home my heavy sun. And then, even on Bjork's Vespertine album, is Aurora. Aurora, goddess sparkle, a mountain shade suggests your shape. I tumble down on my knees, fill my mouth with snow. The way it melts, I wish to melt into you. The fairy goddess of midsummer, Anya, is a Celtic goddess associated with summer, love, protection, fertility, wealth, and sovereignty. She is a complex goddess, and though associated with the sunny times of midsummer, some of her tales are both sorrowful and violent, so not all is what meets the eye with Anya, and definitely explore these layers if she's calling to you. Myth said that she could take the form of Lair Derg, a red mare that no one could outrun, in order to walk among her people. Anya is also known as a fairy queen and a love goddess, and she's been known by other names, such as the Lady of the Lake. Although, from what I found, this is different than King Arthur's Lady of the Lake, the goddess of the earth and nature, the goddess of luck and magic, and the sweetheart of the she. She's honored on Midsummer through different rites of fire, and one of these fire festivals is the Feast of Midsummer Night. On St. John's Eve, on the eve of the 23rd of June, just after the solstice, men used to gather on Cockney, where she was said to dwell, where they would light bunches of straw and hay tied on poles. These poles were then carried in procession to the top of the hill, and later the men ran with the flames through their fields and between cattle to bring good luck for the rest of the year. 
Men who came from neighboring villages were said to be required to look to the moon as they approached the hill to avoid forgetting their homes. Anya is spoken of fondly in myth as being kind-hearted, and the mead sweet or queen of the meadow is said to be her plant. In the Goddess Oracle deck by Doreen Virtue, which is a different deck than the one I've used before on this podcast by Amy Sophia Marashinsky, uh, Anya is associated with a leap of faith. Described as, Anya is a powerful Celtic goddess and fairy queen who gave birth to incarnated fairies from her romances with mortal men. Love it. Anya is revered in Ireland for helping to grow crops and oversee animals, and you can call on Anya when you need additional guidance and the courage to take risks. Anya says, Procrastinating about your dreams won't make them go away. Neither will it make them happen. Indecision is the death of the soul's burning passion to improve, grow, and learn. Don't worry about making a wrong decision. Instead, worry about making no decision at all. And then take time to pray, meditate, investigate, research, go on nature walks, and make your decision. Once made, the universal energies will immediately support your decision and doors will successively open as if by magic. The magic you see is that you've set your mind to accomplish something, and this intention is what sets you on your magical journey. Trust that the universe will support you in all ways. Trust that your intention is clear and right for you, and then take a leap of faith and jump fully and squarely into the midst of putting your dreams into action. Don't hesitate or delay a moment longer. End quote. I love thinking about these two summer sun goddesses from different pantheons together. Aurora is not the leap of faith, but the moment just before the leap of faith. The breakthrough, the first sun, the beginning of light, the bridge between the day and night. While Anya is the expression of summer embodied, the fairy queen of the midsummer, the courage, the fire to move forward, and both of these goddesses appear to ask you, what's next for you? What's burning in your heart? What do you desire? so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Tune in to next week's episode where we talk Litha and say farewell to season two. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time. Mm-hmm.